uh, I heard a story about a man who uh, had just got a new dog and he was walking this new dog around Craigavon Lakes and, uh, and, 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 and for the first time with this new dog he threw a stick and the stick went in the water and he expected the dog to, to paddle over in the water and get the stick but instead the dog ran across the surface of the lake walked on water, ran on water, grabbed the stick, brought it back the man thought he was seeing things. He did it again, threw the stick across the lake. The dog ran on the water, brought it back. He thought, I've got a miracle dog. So the next day he invited his neighbor because he thought somebody else has to witness this incredible miracle. So he invites his neighbor, doesn't say anything, but just walks along, throws the stick. The dog runs across the lake, fetches the stick, brings it back. He looks at his neighbor, nothing. Does it again. Throws the stick, dog runs across the water, and after a while he's getting a bit miffed, and he says to his neighbor, do you not notice something unusual about my dog? And his neighbor says, you know what, I didn't really want to say anything, but I did notice something. Your dog can't swim. And (laughs) Sometimes we get so focused on what is missing that we miss the miracle. We get focused on the defective and the deficient that we miss the incredible and the amazing right in front of us. At my introduction service a couple of weeks ago, was it this past week? Two weeks ago, goodness right, okay, that's what happens when you hit 28. Um, You start forgetting things. Um, At my introduction service, David McClay preached on Ezekiel 37, and it started to stir something within me that I felt there was something prophetic for us as a church. I know David had thought and prayed through what he was going to speak through that night, Uh, and so it got me digging deeper into that passage, starting to think about it again, and so that's what I want to look at this morning, And, and next week actually. Over the next two weeks, we're going to look at Ezekiel 37. It's a passage that is so incredibly discouraging and dark and, and, and desperate and grim that it, it's, it's a picture that could easily overwhelm us it's a picture that could easily have overwhelmed Ezekiel but instead of focusing on what was wrong instead of focusing on his own limited ability to make things change he decided to grab hold of God's unlimited power God's unlimited uh, ability and transform a desperate and dark situation. And that's my prayer for us as we go through this. That instead of looking at the things around us and the things in us that are dark and grim and desperate, that we will grab hold of what God has made available to us and transform those situations. So if you look at verse 1 with me of Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord And set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Let me give you just a a little bit of of context here. Ezekiel was one of the prophets during the 6th century before Christ. He... uh, God, God you, you, some of you will know the story, God had called his people Israel out of Egypt. He had delivered them, he had brought them out, he had parted the Red Sea. God had done these incredible 
things for him and or for his people, and he made a covenant with them. He made an agreement with them. A covenant is just an agreement. And God said basically this: I will be your God. I will look after you. I will protect you. I will bless you. I will bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. You will be my people. You will be a light to the nations. You will obey me. You will love me. You will serve me. You will worship me as the one true God. And as long as you do that, you will know my blessing and my favor upon you. And God always keeps his side of the bargain. God always keeps his side of the agreement. God always keeps his side of his promises. But his people were unfaithful. His people disobeyed him. His people continually and constantly worshipped other gods. That's called idolatry. His people constantly and consistently tried to imitate the nations around them. That's called immorality. They took up the pagan practices of the nations, the sexual practices of the nations. They compromised and there was immorality. So you had idolatry, you had immorality. And the third thing you had was injustice. That God had called his people to be a people who are compassionate who are passionate about the poor, who are passionate about the community, who are passionate about the least, the last, the lost, and the lowest. And his people, instead of caring for the orphan and the widow, began to line their own pockets at the expense of the orphan and the widow and exploit. And so God, rather than just wipe them out, he kept sending these people called prophets. These prophets who kept saying, come back to God, repent, turn around, because if you don't, there will be consequences. People like Jeremiah, people like Isaiah, prophets who came along and said, God loves you. Remember the covenant he made with you. He has kept his covenant. He has kept his promises. Come back to him. And they kept rejecting God. And eventually God gives us what we want. You know what I've discovered in life? That if you want something enough, you'll find a way to get it. Have you found that? That if you really want something enough, you will find a way to get it. Even if at the start you know it's wrong. And God knows his people have rejected him. And when he wants them back, he says, you know what? I'm actually just going to give you what you want. Sometimes the worst thing in life is when God actually gives us what we really want. Because what we really want is not often what's best for us. And God lifts his hand of blessing, his hand of protection, his hand of favor off them. And when God lifts his hand of blessing, protection, and favor off you, that is not a good place to be. And as he does that, the Babylonians, this this empire comes in, and they take over, and they take God's people into captivity. God's people have gone from being exalted in their own land, having their own temple, having their own worship, to being exiles in a foreign land. They're prisoners, they're strangers, they're immigrants. They don't know the language. They, are, uh, they have gone basically back to being slaves. God took them out of slavery in Egypt, and they've gone back to slavery in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. You know what I've discovered in my own life? Compromise often leads to captivity. That compromise might seem innocent, it might seem harmless, it might seem like just a bit of fun, it might seem like there's no consequences, but compromise has consequences and compromise often leads to captivity because sin takes you further than you ever wanted to go and it keeps you ever longer, it keeps you longer than you planned to stay and it costs you more than you ever wanted to pay. And some of us know that in our own lives. Sin takes you further than you wanted to go It keeps you longer than you wanted to stay and it costs you more than you ever intended to pay. And that's what God's people 
found when they disobeyed God. And so they've gone from glory to glory, from exaltation to exile. You know, many years later, Paul would write this to a church in a place called Galatia, to a group of Christians. He said this, It was, sorry, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. If you're a Christian, God has set you free through Jesus Christ. The Bible says, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. If you're a Christian, God has set us free. But you know what Paul's saying here? You can misuse your freedom and end up back in slavery again. There's two ways to do that. One through is licentious sin, that you go back to your own sin, old sinful way of life. And the other way is through legalistic religion. That you go back to thinking that you're right with God through rules and regulations and rituals and obeying the law. And Paul says, you know what, let's just keep enjoying and applying the glorious liberty and freedom Jesus has accomplished for us. And so, back to Babylon. Seventy years God's people spent in Babylon. And in the midst of this, God raises up prophets. One of them's Jeremiah and the other one's Ezekiel. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they have one goal, and that is to declare the word of God to God's people. To hear what God says and tell God's people what God is saying. And they receive this revelation through words, pictures, visions, symbols. They communicate God's heart, God's message. And the message is this. You might have forgotten about God, but God has not forgotten about you. You might have walked away from him, but he is passionately pursuing you. You might be in a foreign land and you might think the presence of God was limited to a temple in Jerusalem, but the prophets remind people that God's presence is not limited to a building. God's presence is not limited to a city, that wherever God's people are, God dwells in the midst of them. And he reminds them who they are and he calls them back to to himself. And he says, if you come back to me, I will restore all you have lost. And the book of Ezekiel is kind of split into two. And the first half is kind of feels a bit like judgment. And really what God is doing, he's telling them, here's why you're in the mess you're in. Like, here's why you are where you are. And some of us need to know that. Sometimes when you're in a mess, it's good to actually figure out how you got into the mess. Because if you don't figure out how you got into the mess, well, for you get back into it, don't you? If you don't, fill, if you don't figure out how I got into this hole, you'll find yourself in the same hole three months later again. And so God tells his people, he says to them, this is why you're in the mess you're in. And sometimes, you know what, we blame other people. Sometimes we blame the devil. You know what, sometimes in our own lives, I've found in my own life that the devil doesn't have to do a thing. He can have a day off because I'm doing a great job for him. He can lie in bed all day. He can be in a scratcher all day because I'm doing the work for him through my sin and through my stupidity. And so God says, look, I can free you, but if you don't know what you did wrong, you'll just end up back in captivity again. So here's what you did wrong. But it's so good to know in the middle of our mess that God is merciful, that our sin is never too gross for his grace. And so that's the first part of the book. It's kind of judgment. It's saying, this is what you did wrong. This is how you ended up in the hole that you're in. 
But then we get to the later part of the book and God always begins to speak hope. He begins to speak mercy. He begins to speak comfort and promise and reassurance and restoration and revival and renewal and saying, if you come back to me, yeah, I have so much stuff I just want to lavish on you. I have so much stuff I want to bless you with. And that takes us to chapter 37, verse 1. And the message paraphrase, it reads like this. I, lo- I love this. God grabbed me. God's spirit took me up and set me in the middle of an open plain strewn with bones. God grabbed me in the middle of a foreign pagan land, in the middle of an ordinary day. As Ezekiel's just going about whatever Ezekiel does, God grabbed him. Do you know there's moments in our lives when God grabs us? There's moments in our lives when God just reaches out and he grabs our attention. He grabs us back to himself. He grabs us from danger and harm. I remember when Elijah must have been about maybe two, two and a half. He had just started to walk. and We were at my, my folks' house one day in, in, in Portadown here and there. Uh, we were all out in the back garden and we were chatting and we looked around and suddenly we went, where's Elijah? And, 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 and we looked in the house and we looked around the garden and he wasn't there and we went through the house and the front door was lying open and he was out there in the front garden and I've never seen Becky move so quick in her life. Even if you were, you know, to, to put some uh, chocolate fudge cake in front of her, I don't think she would move so quickly. <laughs> I'm in trouble for that one when I get home. But... She moved so quickly and she grabbed him. It wasn't a grab of anger. It was a grab of love. It wasn't a grab of judgment. It was a grab of safety. I want to pull you back because there's a road there. There's danger there. And God does that to us. He sees what we're doing. He sees where we are. He sees if we keep going the wrong direction. If we keep on this train, if we keep on this direction, we're going to end up in a mess. And sometimes I'm so thankful for the times God has grabbed me. I'm thankful that 27 years ago, on the 1st of July, 1990, in a muddy field in Castle Archdale in County Fermanagh, as a 14, almost 15-year-old boy, God grabbed me. God grabbed me out of sin. God grabbed me out of the way I was going and he saved me. And I'm thankful that over 27 years, God has grabbed me many times. God has grabbed me when I've been going the wrong way. God has grabbed me when I've been about to make a stupid mistake. God has grabbed me when I found myself in a pit. God has grabbed me. And he's pursued me with his promises. He's grabbed me with his grace. And he's called after me with his kindness. Look at verse 1 in the NIV again. The hand of the Lord was on me. And he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. You see, Ezekiel's not only grabbed, he's repositioned. When God grabs us, he doesn't grab us and set us back down on exactly where we were. He repositions us. God grabs us because he wants to put us somewhere else. He repositions us. And Ezekiel here is set down in a valley, but it's no ordinary valley full of luscious green grass and nice trickling flowing rivers. Look at verse 2. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. Bones that were very dry. 
when we were kids, I remember we used to go to Costa del Portrush on holidays. And uh, we used to love it. And as we were driving along, we used to, as we came over that hill in the back, sort of the, you know, the ball of money to Portrush Road, where you see, we used to sing, I see the sea and the sea sees me, yeah, and all that. And, we, and I, I we used to love it. I mean, you know, I just haven't lived up there for a year now, I'm thinking, goodness. But, uh, but, but, but we used to do all sorts of, we went to the beach, did all sorts of things. But you know what? every kid wants to do when they go to Port Rush. It begins with B and ends with Aries. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I used to love Barry's and, and our little boy now loves Barry's and it feels like if there's a purgatory, it's probably Barry's. And uh, it does, isn't it? As you get older, it's like it goes from your favourite place in the world to like closer to hell than you could ever imagine on earth. Like seriously, especially like in July. Um, and and, and I, I do love the 2P machines. I, I kind of get addicted to the 2P machines because I still think I'm going to get that big win, seven pounds of 2Ps into it. Um, and you, the 2P machines and the roller coasters and of course the dodgems with the sparks flying above you that always seemed like a health and safety hazard. But the thing that I always went on was the ghost train. The ghost train. That rickety old cart that you got into to go through a dark, stinky tunnel full of things that were designed to scare the living daylights out of a child. And there was always like skeletons jumping out and and all sorts of things. And and my therapist tells me that's why I am the way I am today. Because of the ghost train in Barry's. No eight-year-old should have to go through that But the ghost train is nothing compared to what Ezekiel sees here. It's like a scene from a horror movie, a valley full of dead people's bones. Not just a bone here, a bone there. He's he's up to his knees in bones. Skulls and shoulder blades and kneecaps and ribs and femurs and vertebrae and hip bones and ankle bones and finger bones. Thousands of them. It's like, you know those awful news reports you see after like a genocide in like Rwanda or Syria or something like that, where they dig up these mass graves. This is like, like just fields of bones like that. It's horrible. And look at the state of the bones. They're very dry. They've been lying out in public display. They've been baking in the hot sun. Nobody even cared enough about these people to give them a decent burial. There's, and it's not ordered skeletons. It's not like a head and a neck. And a, it's, it's bits of bones everywhere. It's disordered, dismembered. It's, it's just piles of bones. It's a picture of death, devastation, hopelessness, and helplessness. Why is God showing Ezekiel this? Like, is he just trying to scare him? What is this all about? What God is doing is this. He's given Ezekiel a vivid picture of Israel's spiritual condition. And we see this in verse 11. Israel's spiritual condition. Look at what it says. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones, what are they? They're the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. God's people are spiritually dry and dead. There's no life in them. There's no passion in them. There's no joy in them. There's no vitality in them. There's no devotion in them. Their disobedience to God has created distance from God. And when you're separated from God, it brings death. The wages of sin is death. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it brought death. Initially spiritual death and then physical death. It's like a deep sea diver. When a deep sea diver is cut off from their source of life, from their source of oxygen, 
eventually they die. And as humans, we were created to live in relationship with God. He is our source. He is our life. And when we cut ourselves off from that source of life, we die. Spiritually, we die. And then eventually, physically, we die. And Israel was cut off from the life of God. And they're spiritually dead. They're scattered. They're defeated. They're done. And maybe this morning, you find yourself in a place where you feel spiritually dead. Maybe you feel lifeless. No passion, no purpose, no sense of God's presence. You're watching everybody around you worship, raising their hands, and you feel absolutely nothing. You would love to feel the presence of God, but you feel dry, you feel dead. Like these bones, your life feels all over the place, scattered, fragmented, fragmented, chaotic. You feel like your life is disordered, there's just bits of stuff everywhere. Maybe you know it's your own sin that got you that way. But you don't want to stay like that. You want something to change and you need God to do something. Look at verse 2 again. He led me to and fro among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. I was going to call this sermon the graveyard shift or T.D. Jakes. I love big T.D. Jakes. He calls it the bone collector. So here we have Ezekiel. He's, he's walking through this valley and he sees decomposing corpses. He sees uh, uh, rotten bodies and everywhere he looks he sees death, destruction, discouragement, despair and desperation. And he's not hovering above it. He's right in the middle of it. He's completely surrounded by it on every side. And maybe that's how you feel with your life. Maybe you just feel like you're in the middle of a mess. Maybe you feel like everywhere you turn in life, everything feels like it's gone wrong. That there's stuff and situations and people that are just draining the life out of you. Things that aren't working, stuff that isn't coming together. That everywhere you look in your surroundings, there's nothing there that brings you joy. Everywhere you look around you, there's nothing that brings you life. Everywhere that you look around you, there's nothing that excites you. There's nothing that energizes you. You know, surroundings are really important. Shops know that. Shops spend a fortune bringing consultants in to get the lighting right. And the ambience right. And the music just right. And some shops even pump fragrances out. If you've ever been in a city where there's an Abercrombie and Fitch... You smell it before you can see it. Hollister, you smell it before you... You know, they pump out these fragrances. Bread shops, food shops, and we're in America. Cinnabon. Yeah? Yeah? Cinnabon makes my wife salivate. Like, she, 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 she loves the smell of Cinnabon. It's just because you smell something and it, it does something within you. Smells and senses are important. And what surrounds us is important because what surrounds us gets into us and what gets into us becomes part of us and comes out of us. Parents know that. You know how important surroundings are. That's why you want your kids to go to certain schools and not to other schools. That's why when your kids are seven, eight years old and they bring home that friend who feels like he must have a 666 somewhere under his hair that you go, you're better not hanging about with that kid anymore. You know, his nickname's Damien. And, 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 you know, because you know that what, who your kid surrounds themselves with will eventually start to leak into your kid. Surroundings are important. I did prison ministry. I was a chaplain for one of the prisons in Dublin when I was there. 
And as I would meet prisoners, I would often say, I remember there was one Polish guy who was a lovely, lovely guy. His name was Jack. And he had done some horrible things, and he was deeply regretful. And, and, and I, I remember one day, it was just him and I sitting, and I said, Jack, how did this happen? Like, I look at you, and I, I just, I, I know what you did. You've told me what, what and you know, his sentence started like this. I started hanging around with these guys from work. I started hanging around these guys from work. I went out for a drink with these guys from work. I went to the bathroom. I came back. I took my drink. There was something in it. And it led to him doing things that in his right mind he would never have dreamt of doing. Who we surround ourselves with, what we surround ourselves with has a big impact on our lives because it influences us, it impacts us, it seeps into us and it begins to shape us. So how do you walk through surroundings of darkness and discouragement, fear or immorality? Maybe tomorrow in college, you're surrounded by people who, the first thing will be, they'll be telling you how smashed they got this weekend. Who they slept with this weekend. What they were up to this weekend. Maybe in work, how do you surround yourselves with a toxic environment of negativity and and gossip and backbiting? Maybe even in your own home, how do you... How do you deal with that where you feel like the life is being sucked out of me here? Verse 3. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. God asks Ezekiel a question. Ezekiel, these bones, can they live? And the obvious answer is, no. Look at them, they're dry, they're scattered. But Ezekiel also knows that God is a God of the impossible, that God can do anything, so he kind of hedges his bets a bit. He says, God, you alone know. In other words, sometimes it's it's okay just to go, I haven't a clue. He says, you alone know. He he, kind of says, this is above my pay grade, God. I, I haven't a clue, but you alone know. God only knows. And look at what God tells him to do. And we're getting towards the end here. Verses 4 to 6. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and said to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. He says, prophesy to these bones. Prophesy simply means to declare the word of the Lord, to speak what God says. Now, I have preached in some pretty dreary churches over the years. I have preached to some people that I thought, they look pretty dead. I have preached to some people that I'm thinking, actually, can somebody check the pulses of the congregation in here? I have preached in some places where I've thought, Jesus, please come back before this is over, because I cannot take this anymore. I remember one particular place that I shall not mention, but literally, it felt like preaching in a graveyard to a bunch of dead bones. But I've never preached to anybody as bad as this. They don't even have ears. But God says this, stop speaking about what you see and start speaking to what you see. Call your surroundings into line with how God says it should be. Because you know what I have found? We become great at describing what's wrong. 
We can describe in great detail what's wrong with our community, what's wrong with our country, what's wrong with our politicians, what's wrong with our lives, what's wrong with our bodies. We can describe in great detail our sickness to people much more than they ever want to hear. We can describe in great detail what's wrong with our jobs. And God says, instead of describing what's wrong, why don't you start speaking life? Why don't you start speaking my word? Instead of describing what you see, why don't you start describing what I say? He doesn't say describe why they're dead. He says decree life into them. And some of us need to stop talking about our problems and start speaking God's word to our problems. We need to start speaking God's word over our problems. We need to start speaking God's word into our circumstances. Stop speaking about what we see and start speaking about what God says until what we see lines up with what God says. Mark 11 says this. Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, first of all he says, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go through yourself into the sea. And does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen. It will be done for them. Truly, I te- therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Jesus says, when you're faced with a mountain, and we all get faced with mountains, don't describe the mountain. Don't talk about the mountain. Don't talk about how big the mountain is, how wide the mountain is. He actually doesn't even say pray about the mountain. What does he say? Speak to the mountain. And say, mountain, move now. And that's why in this church, when we're praying for the sick, we typically don't pray, Lord, we thank you for Sadie, and we thank you that she's loved you all her life. And Lord, this awful uh, ulcer that she's got, Lord, we know how terrible it is and how much... That's how how I kind of heard people pray for the first 20 years of my Christian life how awful it is and the faith level in the room's just sinking by the minute and how Sadie's just feeling miserable with it. And Lord, you know how good she's been to you and how Tommy, her husband, always cut the grass of the church every Saturday. Was it Saturday morning or after? I don't know, Lord. You know, Lord. And we would, you know, we were going all this. And we're, you know what we're trying to do? We're trying to convince God. We feel like if we give God a big enough sob story, he might go, all right then. Sadie's good. Ulcer be gone. Have you, you felt, we've all heard people pray like that, haven't we? It's like God, it's like God's going, really? Like, did, did Tommy really cut the grass? I didn't know Tommy cut the grass. The omniscient God didn't know that Tommy cut the grass, whether it was morning or afternoon on a Saturday. Like, and we just feel if we give God enough details and enough brownie points for Sadie, he'll go, okay, then you've talked me, you know, you've, you've, my arm's up my back, you've got me. God does not generally respond to pity. God responds to faith. The, you know that book, The Love Languages, The Five Love Languages that you give everybody before? You know what God's love language is? Faith. God moves according to faith. In fact, in Hebrews 11, it says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not just blind faith, not just faith in anything, but faith in God. Faith in his word. Faith in what he has said. Faith in his promises. Faith in his decrees. Faith in his declarations. You know, sometimes our little boy Elijah, he'll come out with stuff and I'll look at him and I'll go, do you know what that even means? And he'll go, no, I haven't a clue. He'll come out with stuff that just sounds way too grown up. Or he'll say something to Becky and she'll be like, where did you hear that? He'll say, daddy said it. 
Do you know what? Sometimes we need to just start saying what Dottie says. We need to start speaking what Dottie says. Even if we don't completely understand it, we just need to start declaring and speaking over things what Dottie says. Calling it what Dottie calls it. Romans 4.17, Paul says this about God. He says he's the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not It's not about naming it what it is. It's about naming it what God says it can be. Speak in life where there's death. Hope where there's despair. Health and wholeness where there's sickness. Abundance where there's lack. Courage where there's fear. Because Proverbs 18 says this, that the tongue has the power of life and death. Stop speaking death by constantly describing your problems and start speaking life by declaring his promises over our problems. Verses 7 and 8. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. The bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. So Ezekiel does what God commands, even though it seems ridiculous, because sometimes God will ask you to do things that seem ridiculous. He looks at these bones, these dry, desperate bones, and he starts prophesying. He starts decreeing life into them. He prophesies their potential. And the first thing it says is he hears a noise. He hears a rattling. He hears a sound. There's something happening. And that's often how it happens. Before we see the change, we sense the change. And I felt there was something on this as I prepared. For some of you at the minute, you're sensing change. You're not seeing change, you're sensing change. You've been praying for change in your job, in your life, in your family situation, and you aren't seeing it, but you're sensing it. There's something stirring within you. I was talking to somebody just on Friday, and, I, and, I, and it's a, they, were, they were talking about a big move that they're thinking of making at some stage and just stuff. And he says, I'm not seeing anything yet, but I'm sensing something. When I'm in prayer, I'm sensing something. I'm sensing a stirring in my heart. I'm sensing something. I don't see it, but I sense it. We sense something is shifting. You know, before, before autumn comes, you go, it starts to feel like autumn. It's starting to feel like it's starting to smell like it's starting to, the air starts to, you sense it before you see it. In the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah prophesied there wouldn't be rain for three and a half years and there wasn't rain. And then he comes before King Ahab and he says this. He prays for rain and he says this. Elijah said to Ahab, get up and eat and drink. Why? Because there's the sound. There's the sound of rain. I don't see the rain, but I sense it. There's a sound. It's vibrations just picked up by the ear. When I was growing up in Portadown, we, we lived uh, just off Jervis Street in Arthur Avenue there at the front of Millington. And, and uh, there was a railway line uh, not far from us. And, and it was a, a, a shortcut into town. I'm always so conscious that my parents are sitting here when I'm telling these stories. Um, honestly, they have other railway stories that they beat me for at the time, but, uh, but this wasn't one that they caught me on. But we used to cross the railway line to get into town, into the fair green and into town, and we would cross the railway line. But you know what we would do? First of all, we would look, but then we would listen. We would listen for the train. 
and then we would be quiet because we knew if there was a train coming, we would feel it. We would feel the vibrations on the track. We would sense it before we would see it. There's a sound before there's a reality. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, they're waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. What do we read? Suddenly there came a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. There was a sound. The sound was an indication the promise is on its way. I want to tell some of you this morning this. I felt God told me to tell you this. It's on its way. Some of you need to hear that. It's on its way. What is? Whatever you're praying for. Whatever he's promised you. Whatever has been spoken over you. Whatever has been prophesied over you. Whatever feels like it's been taken too long. I feel like God is saying it's on its way. Can you sense it? Do you hear the sound? Do you feel it? Do you pick up the vibration of it? It is on its way. Do you feel the stirring? He wants to ignite a stirring and a spark in your heart to revive that faith. That thing that you thought was dead. He wants to say to you it's on its way. It's on its way. You can't see it, but I want you to sense it. You can't see it, but I want you to feel it. You can't see it, but I want you to sense the stirring within you. And Ezekiel heard a sound. He sensed it before he saw it with his sight. And the sound intensified until it became a movement. And things that were apart started coming together. Order out of chaos. Dead things, dry things started joining up. And it all began with him speaking God's word over it. Not his word, God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16, the word of God is alive and active. Do you know the power in God's word? Do you know the power that God's word has? Your words are good. Your words are powerful. But when your words become God's words, when you start to declare his word over your life, it changes everything. Deuteronomy 32, 47 says this. These are not just idle words. They are your life. Hebrews 12, the word of God is active and alive. This book is filled with the breath of God. This book pulsates with the presence of God. When you declare God's word over your life, things change and things shift. And if you're feeling dry and dead right now in your life, I, I would challenge you to start digesting this word. Start reading this word. Start speaking this word. Stop speaking about the situation. Stop speaking about the dry bones. Stop speaking about the dead places and start declaring what the Lord. Say, God, what I know my workplace is a horrible place. I know there's gossip. I know there's backbiting. I know my boss is horrible. But God, what do you say about that place? I know Craig Avon has all sorts of problems. But God, what do you say about Craig Avon? I know that my community is filled with dry bones, but God, what do you see? What do you see? What's your vision? What's your word? And stop speaking what you see and start speaking what he says because the word of God is powerful. It's living and active. It changes, it transforms, it brings life, and it turns things around. Your, his word on your lips is the same as his word on his lips. It's his word that has the power, not not you. His word is so powerful. I want to finish with a story I heard a while ago. It happened in, in Russia back during when it was so strongly communist that there were no Christians allowed in the country. And remember, people used to smuggle Bibles into Russia and, and all this stuff. And there was a, a pastor or a missionary on a train. 
and he was going through through Russia. And there was another another guy, a, a communist guy, in the, in the little cart with him on the train, and they started talking, and the pastor started talking about Jesus to this guy, and this guy was very angry. He did not want to hear about Jesus. And the pastor was trying to share his faith with him. And eventually the pastor reached into his bag and he took out his, his Bible and he had this little Bible and it was tattered and it was torn and there were pages missing. It was the most precious thing he owned. And he began to open the Bible and began to share with this guy all about Jesus. And this guy got mad. He got angry. He was furious. And at one stage he got so mad that he grabbed the pastor's Bible and threw it out the window of the train. And this little old pastor was weeping. He was, and this was the most precious thing he owned. He was weeping. He was inconsolable. His only Bible was gone. But ten years later, the pastor found, or the missionary found himself back in that area. He went there to share the gospel because it was an unreached people as far as he knew. And he arrived in this little town. And he began to share about Jesus. And somebody said, come here, come with us. And he went and he met them. And there was this underground church of 600 believers in this little town. And the missionary was amazed. He was absolutely shocked. Because as far as he had heard, the gospel had never been preached in this place. And he said, I thought the gospel had never been preached here. How did you hear about Jesus? And the leader of the church said, you know, one day I was out in the field... And I looked down and there was this little book there, this this little tattered book with pages hanging out of it. And I picked it up and I brought it home and I started reading it to my family. And my wife and my children got said yes to Jesus. And our neighbours saw how our lives changed and they said, what happened? And we called them in and we said, we've got this book. And we started reading it to them. And they accepted Jesus. And this kept going around our our little village and our neighbourhood and eventually 600 people accepted Jesus. And he said, so this 600 people in this church, it all started because I was out in the field and I found a little book and it has changed our whole community. God's word has power. Instead of speaking about what you see, speak about what he says. Would you stand with me? Let's pray and 